Hi, this is Mary Angela Perna, and welcome to Lush Left Media. On today's program, I'm so fortunate, I have Jennifer Mercia. She is a professor in the Department of Communication at Texas A&M University. She's the author of Founding Fictions and co-editor of The Reddick of Heroic Expectations, Establishing the Obama Presidency, and her latest, published in July of 2020, Demagogue for President. It's a must-read. She frequently appears as an expert commentator and consultant for national and international media outlets. I could go on and on. Welcome to the program, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me on your show. So I found you because I found this amazing Twitter thread to the point where, I mean, I could read it 50 million times. But essentially, so you wrote this on the 19th of May, 2021, and you're really talking about, like, because where we are in this moment is you have that Stop the Steal movement that happened mm-hmm. that led to the insurrection. It's just, it's, it's just evolved to this, we're going, we're going to do third-party nonsense, quote-unquote, audits in Maricopa County. Now they're doing Fulton County in Georgia. They're trying to do Michigan. I mean, this is like where we're at. And you were basically saying that, you know, you've been saying this for since the Stop the Steel movement. I thought it went back two years. I knew that it was an Ali Alexander and Roger Stone kind of production. And I rem- I'm old enough to remember the Brooks Brothers, the Gore versus uh, <laughs> Bush with, you know, Roger Stone. But I didn't realize that it, it really went back to 2016 as far as Stop the Steel. Can you, can you expand on that? Yeah, yeah. So I, um, I have this as just a, a small part of <laughs> the last chapter in my book about Trump's 2016 campaign. And that chapter is where I really address Trump's authoritarianism and his authoritarian appeal and how, you know, you could tell that he was appealing to authoritarian voters because he was asking them to violate democratic norms. And that polling at the time uh, was showing that Trump supporters would choose Trump over democracy. Um, And so the Stop the Steal campaign um, was just one example of of, of all of that, you know, which, of course, became very relevant. Um, And... So, yeah, so what I did was um, just retrace the history of that phrase and how Trump learned to say it. Um, And, you know, it it probably wouldn't surprise folks today, um, but maybe at the time it would have been useful to understand (laughs) that Trump learned to say it from Roger Stone, um, from Alex Jones, from InfoWars. You know, that they they specifically had created a website, I think Roger Stone has actually created the website partly as a fundraiser, but also partly to prevent um, Ted Cruz from getting the nomination from the Republican Party in 2016. Um, And so that was its original purpose. And then it kind of went dark for a few months. And then it was revivified um, right after the Democratic National Convention. And um, at that point, Roger Stone and Alex Jones both started to tell Trump that the election was going to be stolen and that he needed to be saying every day, this election is going to be stolen from me. You know, they're corrupt, they cheat. And if I don't win, it's because they've stolen it. Um, And so then, you know, 
a whole bunch of other things fell, you know, from that, right, which was he was going to sign up poll workers, you know, he was going to have people, um, you know, monitoring the polls, which he actually didn't do in 2016 um, because he didn't have a lot of follow-through <laughs> on right. Um, but, you know, it was all like a part of the plan, you know, to say that this thing has been stolen. And in 2016, when Roger Stone was urging Trump um, to say those things, he was saying, you know, let them know that we're not going to stand for this. Let them know that there won't be, you know, a constitutionally, you know, sanctioned change of power if they steal the election um, that will fight this. And, right. um, you know, so it's very... Uh, prescient for what happened in 2021. Yeah, I mean, and for those that don't realize, I mean, Roger Stone has been a fixture of Republican politics since, I mean, I, prior to Reagan. And he had a very successful lobbying firm with Paul Manafort. So this goes back. Roger Stone's nonsense goes back a very long time. And he wanted Trump to run for years, and he's had a relationship with Trump, right, for, like, decades, mm-hmm. frankly. Yes. <laughs> now, yes. so, okay, so now, so it's like, it's like Trump showed us who he was. Not enough people took it seriously. I, if we listen, to be honest, I'm, you know, I was you know, a Sanders supporter at the time, and it's interesting. I don't know if... I saw that you said that, or I saw it in my reading when I was, you know, doing my research, you know, to have you on, but that he was, he was using the, what was happening on the other side, you know, that messaging about the, the primary has been stolen from Hillary Clinton with Bernie, Bernie Sanders. Can you, that's right. That's what they were saying. Yeah, absolutely. So Trump thought um, that he could appeal to Sanders voters by making the same argument, right? So part of his his reasoning is that they stole the nomination from Bernie. So of course, they're going to steal the election from me, right? Like we're both outsiders. We're both, you know, not part of, um, you know, their exclusive, you know, co-op club or whatever. And so just like they did to Bernie, they're going to do to me. Um, and that's how you know they're going to do it. I mean, that was the argument. Isn't it sort of, and isn't it sort of like a populist, like us versus them establishment versus we're the real people? You, you know what I mean? Okay, yeah, absolutely. I, I thought, yeah, I thought that was really fascinating. And then, you know, as I was like, you're such great. You, everybody, go to her Twitter. What's your Twitter? Just before, so just in case people. I forget to ask you again. Jen Merchant. <laughs> okay. So totally as I was going down the rabbit hole of your Twitter, because you link like other threads, and you had one from 2019. So now we're fast forwarding like in during his presidency. And you talk about the Trump aesthetic, can, the fascist aesthetic. Can you, what is that? What do you mean by that? Yeah, I like that thread. <laughs> I, I loved it. I was like, wow, I like I'm screenshotting, I'm circling. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm writing a new book on propaganda, and I think I'm going to include basically that thread. Yeah, include that. Very good. <laughs> because it's not in my, my book. 
Um, yeah, so this is an ad that um, Trump posted on his social media feed. And you've probably seen it or seen some version of it because a lot of um, right-wing authoritarian leaders apparently have used a similar ad um, on their own social media feeds. It's exactly the same, um, just in different languages. But so it's Trump. He's sitting in black and white. You know, he's sort of looking right at you, looking at this camera. Um, he's pointing his finger at you. And in, you know, big, bold white letters, it says, um, they're not after me. They're after you. I'm just in the way. Right. Um, and it's such a great example of how Trump uses the fascist aesthetic, right? So some people, some you know, academics who study fascism say that it's as much a, you know, like a look, like a, a culture, a way of life, um, you know, a, an aesthetic, um, as it is anything else, like a political program. Um, you know, that it sort of um, is something that draws people in visually and, and culturally. And, right. um, and so people who write about that, you know, they sort of list out all the ways that um, fascism has a kind of, you know, look about it. Um, and then so I, I kind of take some of those ideas and uh, people like Jason Stanley, who writes about how fascism works and kind of um, goes through the different, you know, arguments or, or um, narratives, I guess, that fascists use in their appeals. And it's things like simplicity over complexity, um, you know, so everything is black and white. It's a black and white photo. Um, you know, things like, um, you know, aggression, of course, um, anti-intellectualism, you know, conspiracy arguments, you know, et cetera, right. et cetera. There's lots of different things. And um, so, I, yeah, so in that thread, I just kind of go through the whole thing um, and, and just show how, like, this very simple, stark image, you know, this meme, um, actually is incredibly complex in how it resonates with people and plays into, you know, these desires for strong authoritarian leaders um, right. and how t Trump takes advantage of it. And, and you say in that same thread, quote, the left has a rich and vibrant history of using art, music, literature, and performance to gain critical distance, to question why life is the way it is, to make it weird, unfamiliar, and like, I guess, anarchy, and atonal <laughs> so that we might, we might see just how little present conditions make sense. So in other words, that was kind of like a prescription you're kind of providing. It, what do you mean by weirdify? I, you know, it's like we're all looking for answers. I, I just found this really fascinating. So, like, what, like, almost like to break up fascism, like, is to create art or messaging that, what, what do you mean? Yeah, yeah. So, so fascism is all about like, um, you know, privileging uh, a nostalgia for a distant past, you know, one that never existed, basically, <laughs> um, and and. And it's all about, like, what is viewed as normal is good. Um, and right. so, you know, what's the opposite of that is weird. <laughs> um, you know, I live in Texas, and uh, the, the motto of Austin, Texas is keep Austin weird. Um, mm. And there's a reason for that. <laughs> right. You know, it has that kind of anti-fascist aesthetic. Yeah, um, yeah. In a, in a very, like, you know, Texas place. <laughs> Um, do you think, and, do you think so, that's yeah. why, you know, 
this is so interesting to me. You know, I, in my past life, see, I have a whole music background. And yeah. a lot of it, I lived in the village and then in, you know, the hipster part of Brooklyn. But the, but the great thing about it was there was so much art going on, you know, whatever form, whether it was filmmaking or music or visual arts. I mean, it, it was just, uh, people were progressive. I mean, that was basically, we didn't call it, I think we just said we were liberals back then. But it was, we were all on the left, you know what I mean? So it would be unthinkable to even know anyone that was a right winger. I mean, you would never meet someone like that. And in Austin, and I, you know, I know that Austin is very, has has a huge music community. I mean, I had a lot of people that would go to South, you know, the, the big music conference every year. And I've never personally been to Austin, but I'm wondering, do you think that, you know, areas where there's like a, a an artist kind of influence, people are more, they're just, I don't know, help me. What am I trying to say? Yeah. You're the professor. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, your I'm just a podcast. Is what I'm talking about. <laughs> so, you know, like one way of, of, of you know, making that um, into an academic thing is to say, um, you know, Michelle Foucault, who writes about, um, you know, normalization, like how, how things become first problematized in society where society recognizes something and goes, oh, that's, right. that's a problem. We got to control that. We got to fix that up, um, whatever it is. Um, and it's usually, you know, somebody's doing something that um, in some way, you know, prevents people in power from using their power the way they want to. Um, you know, and so that has to be identified and um, named and controlled. Um, and so then, you know, like appropriate behavior comes out of that. And so then that, that behavior is usually safe for those in power, right? And so then that's normal and good. Um, and then uh, what other people do, um, you know, that's not normal and good. It's bad and dangerous. Um, and so, you know, in fact, Trump runs on this, right? He runs on like, oh, we're not going to, you know, kowtow to what's normal, which is corrupt and, you know, politically correct. You know, we're going to be anarchists ourselves. We're going to, you know, mess stuff up and we're going to, you know, get democracy back and, and take care of our people. Um, you know, that's his claim. Like, that's his whole argument for, for why he should run in 2016 and what he's doing with his presidency. So he runs as, like, <laughs> someone who's going to weirdify, you know. Yeah, as a disruptor. Right. Um, but so in the end, of course, he ends up being this authoritarian and um, someone who's unwilling to let go of power. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of complicated in that you have both sides saying that the mainstream, whatever it is, um, that they sort of understand to be the, the mainstream, is corrupt and broken and bad. And we're going to be weird. We're going to say what we want to say. Um, and we're going to do the things that we want to do because we don't want them to have power. Like their values are not our values. We don't want them to have power over us. Um, and so, I mean, you know, they call it a culture war. <laughs> Right. Um, and a civil war, you know, a cold civil war, sometimes a hot civil war. Um, and, and that's sort of the moment we're in. Um, and so it's important, I think, that people on the left recognize that that's the moment we're in because people on the right know that that's the moment we're in. Right. Well, on the same topic, just really quickly, 
with the fascist aesthetic and fascism. You know, again, I listen to Bannon's show every day. Why I torture myself, I don't know. But, I mean, I kind of, it's like I'm psychic because then I know what's going to happen, like, three weeks in advance. <laughs> and yeah. and I keep a running list of who's on there. But it's like the same players. Over. He's, he's got his inner circle. I'll go, Trump's inner circle. I'll go on there. They've been going on there for a year and change. I mean, it's like the same cast of characters, right? And... So I knew about the stop the steal thing because it immediately he was bringing these people on and the Hunter Biden stuff before that with Giuliani and it just, it's endless or, or just information about the you know, COVID. I mean, I could go on forever and he's always at war. Bannon is always at war with you. It's always about war. He in fact, a show called war room pandemic <laughs> and he, I, I, I'm signed up to his daily, they update you on, like, things they want you to. He always calls it being a force multiplier. He literally says that phrase. He wants <laughs> you to amplify his content. And the, he's been kicked off of everything except for Apple Podcasts. I mean, he has, like, in the top 20, top 30 pods, you know, as far as, like, the you know, Apple rates, you know, like billboards, think of like billboard, uh, the top 100, you know, it's, he's in like the top 20 of political podcasts. So he gets a ton of listens. I don't know how he's still on any normal platform. It's terrible, but he's constantly telling his audience, look, this is an activist audience. You're all forced multipliers this up over and over. And how he, <laughs> when you get his emails and I'm this, this thread made me think of this immediately. He says, hi, deplorables. So no, he's constantly calling his audience deplorables. Like, be proud. Mm-hmm. We're deplorables. Remember when Hillary Clinton's a basket of deplorables? Is that what you're – this is a long-winded way of me asking you with, in, in, in this theme of your, you know, fascist aesthetic that, you know, or like just kind of like what fascists use, you know, kind of the populism, the us versus them and I hate, like, a, like we're the real people. They're just the, they're the, I don't know, bourgeoisie. I don't mean to get all Marxist, but, like, the bourgeoisie, or they're the <laughs> academics. They're the professional class. They're, uh, they're not out for you. I'm, we're, I'm for the little guy, and they're, they're calling you deplorables. That's right. exactly how Bannon talks. Right. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, that's one of the things that I write about in my book. So I try to explain, you know, so in the the demagogue book, um, so a demagogue is a leader of the people. And that's neutral, right? You could be a good leader of the people. You could be a bad leader of the people. Um, We normally think of um, a demagogue as a a bad leader of the people. Um, And so in my book, I try to explain, like, one way to understand Trump is that he is a heroic demagogue to his followers. He is someone who is defending their interests against the other parts of the state that he and they believe are corrupt and beyond redemption. Um, everyone else sees him as a dangerous demagogue, right, who is an unaccountable right. leader who uses polarizing propaganda for his own gain. Right. Um, and so I try to show how he does that. <laughs> with with words, you know, with language um, and strategy. 
And what he does to bring himself closer to his followers so that they think he's a hero is, first of all, using ad populum, which is what you're noticing um, in those arguments with Bannon. Um, Bannon's doing the same thing. And so appeals to the wisdom of the people. And it's not all the people. It's just Trump's people, um, right? He's very, very much narrow casting that argument. Um, And it's always that they are the best of America. They are the good people, the hardworking, the only honest ones. Everyone else is That's exactly corrupt. how Bannon talks every single day. Yeah. Yep. Over every message that is encoded in every single message that um, Trump puts out um, and, and all of the right wing. I mean, that's like, you can't be a demagogue if you don't have followers, <laughs> right? right. So you're constantly, you have no political power if you have no followers. Um, and so the, the first argument is always ad populum, um, appealing to the wisdom of their people over, you know, those others that are always corrupt, always contaminated, um, you know, have no redeeming qualities whatsoever. And so it's always us versus them. It's always never trust them, um, right? Like it's always like heightening the frustration you feel because they, those bad people are in power and you're not, the good people are not, right? That's just, in, it, it's just fundamental. It's every part of every message. Um, so they all use ad populum. Trump also used um, paralipses, which is, I'm not saying, I'm just saying, um, a lot. Uh, he used that, you know, to like create this identification with his audience so that they believe that right. they really understood like the backstage of, you know, what Trump's really about. And like, he's going to say the awful truth that he knows he shouldn't say, you know, it's funny. There's the ironic wink, wink, wink. And it allows him to amplify and recirculate, um, you know, conspiracy theory, propaganda, um, you know, innuendo, just outright lies. Like I stuff. saw that you you out you highlighted in some appearance that you were on that he does this he did that mid debate with Biden like I'm not saying that you should <laughs> and then it's something ridiculous yeah I'm not saying yeah, it, yeah, but yeah, I'm yeah. saying or remember when remember when he like Jeff Flake he was one of the early dissenters you know what I mean and. Mm-hmm. He wasn't going along with the program and so. Trump goes to Arizona and he's like, look, they're telling, everybody is telling me don't mention this, the Arizona center, so I won't mention them. But we right. don't know and that was the end of Jeff Blake's career. Yeah, absolutely. Is that what you mean? Yeah, always, yeah, doing all kinds of that kind of thing, you know, so he's like, um, you know, at his rallies, he'll be like, oh, I promised my people I'd be nice today. So I'm not going to say that right. uh, Ted Cruz is a liar. And I'm not going to say <laughs> that right. Marco's little And I'm right. not going to say that Jeb is low energy. So I didn't say any of that, okay? <laughs> and they all crack up. Um, right. Right. <laughs> right. So, okay. So that's fun for them. <laughs> um, and that's one of his other strategies, which is um, – ad hominem attacks, right? So he's great at branding. He's not good at business, but he's good at, at name calling and branding and marketing. Um, and so he uses ad hominem, right, to attack his enemies, to delegitimize them, uh, but also to unify his followers because it's, you know, it's a lot of fun to, um, you know, say Lion Ted Cruz and Little Marco and Corrupt right. Hillary and all that kind of stuff. Like, we hate them, so, you know, why shouldn't we laugh at them and point and call them names. 
so now, okay, thank you so much for helping us, you know, me understand better, and I hope that everyone listening to this can understand because it's really important. So where, where do you see this, like, and, and again, I mean, you know, he was delegitimizing if all of us, you know, I know things, so many things are going on, but I certainly haven't forgotten the hell of he was hating them because of COVID. We are all switching over to mail-in voting. It's the first time I ever did mail-in voting. My husband and I were checking every second where our ballot was, you know, here in New Jersey. <laughs> and... I, I mean, people were taking photographs of them going to their drop boxes because remember with the joy, yeah. he had the joy on there and the mailing. So he was already creating this their, their voter fraud, mail-in, which mail-in voting has been around <laughs> forever. Go to Florida. Right. Like old people do it by mail. And he was even using like double speak of like what and gaslighting of what mail-in voting is. It's absentee vote. It's the same thing. Is that what you're talking about? So, like, is that more of this, what you mean? Yeah. So we're not um, supposed to know what that is, mail-in voting. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah. So one of the things that I try to do in the book is to show how Trump's arguments or his rhetorical strategies work so well because of pre-existing distrust and polarization and frustration. And so, you know, he essentially attacked the American public sphere by using rhetorical strategies that were designed to make all of those things worse, right? So he profits the more we distrust one another, the system, you know, truth, reality, all of that. Um, He profits the more we're polarized. He profits the more we're frustrated. Um, And so what you saw with what he was doing with the election um, is taking advantage of distrust. Uh, And with the election, you know, with any election like that, I mean, you kind of are required to trust a lot. (laughs) Right. You know, you, you, you go into the voting booth or, you know, you send in your ballot and you hope it, it gets counted, you know, like you don't really, you can't watch it happen. There's not enough transparency in the process that you can actually say, yes, I have, you know, 100% confidence that that machine recorded what I wanted that, you know, that those, that record, you know, was entered into the, <laughs> the actual tally and that no one, right. you know, changed the process. Like, there's a lot of rec- trust that's required for that. Um, and so Trump knows that because we can't see it because we don't have the ability, you know, to watch the whole thing behind the scenes, um, that there's a lot of room there for him to intercede. Um, and so, of course, there's the mechanizations that, you know, he tries to deploy because he controls the political system. So he tries to prevent, you know, the ballots from getting where they're supposed to get and, you know, being counted on time and, and all of those things through the post office. Um, but then also he's, of course, using what he has um, at his disposal, which is the megaphone of the presidency and his huge um, ability to shape the narrative through social media right. to um, create more and more distrust. And so what was a successful strategy for him in 2016, right, like his followers were completely on board with this election is being stolen, 
Um, you know, they're pointing to evidence of fake articles that are being read that we, you know, knew were fake later, um, you know, and not at the time, or although fact checkers right. are telling us um, that doesn't really work. Um, you know, they were they were signing up to be poll watchers, even though Trump didn't follow through and contact them. You know, they were they were ready. <laughs> right, right. Like sorry, they were ready, part. right? Like they were right. it absolutely. And they said, if Trump loses, if they say Trump loses, it's only because they stole the election. So they were primed right. for that already. And then everything about Trump's four years in office, of course, only reconfirmed this us versus them narrative. Right. right. You know, him attacking the press, him attacking Democrats, you know, the impeachment, plural, like all of that only um, adds to that idea that they're never going to give us a fair deal or a fair shake. They're always going to try to cheat. Um, of course, they're going to try to steal this election from us. You know, of course, we're going to win because we're being told every day that we're powerful. We're so powerful. There's so many of us. <laughs> right. Right. Um, and so there's no reason to believe that that's not the case. If those are the messages that you get and you trust Trump and, you know, the people that are around him and you don't trust anyone else. So where do you see, so now, again, the stuff, the steel movement, <laughs> all the same players, I can promise everybody that, is just, Stone was pardoned, Bannon was, Bannon's trial would be this month. Bannon was pardoned. Right. I am very worried. Maybe I need to stop watching see Bannon every day. I don't, I think. <laughs> but I'm, because I don't have psychic abilities, but knew that this was all going to just was, was morphing into, I mean, here's like a typical line of Bannon. You know, we can't get We can't move forward until we know what happened on November 3rd. I, I, he says it 50 million times in a program and mm-hmm. we have to, and, and, and so that, and so he's bringing people on slowly, slowly to, and to, we have to get to the bottom of November 3rd. And remember, he was one of the main people pushing the staff to steal. So I'm seeing the very same, and I, we found out through Bloomberg that, the Bloomberg News, that just because Steve Bannon was kicked out of the White House, he was talking to Trump at least for the last year. We know, we, we know this now. It was confirmed. And that was, in the, in, we found that out like right after the election at some point, like I think maybe November-ish. So he'd been talking. Mm-hmm. I had a suspicion because Trump would magically do what I've been hearing on Bannon's show through two weeks prior, and then all of a sudden Trump's saying, you know what I mean? Or the same thing with Alex Jones. This is a great documentary. It's on PBS, and it's called The Conspiracy States of America. Just look for Alex Jones and PBS. And it's yeah. pretty recent, and it's, I think it's a year old. And it's basically the thing, like what you saw on Alex Jones you know, it, you, during the 2016 election, Trump would say it, like, a day, three days later. Well, to, to me, it's the same thing with the, the Bannon thing. And I am very concerned because I'm seeing a stop the steal thing with, like, that ended up with 60 lawsuits and our our system held because these judges, you know, kept the system in place. 
I knew about that, that he was, you know, the one six. I mean, Bannon was talking about we need to go to, to, we need to stop these electors on when they try to certify this. He was doing this for weeks and weeks and weeks. So mm-hmm. my worry is now he's managed to make uh, a Maricopa County do this ridiculous, literal QAnon adjacent third-party nonsense audits looking for bamboo or whatever. Now they've managed to get a judge to okay it in Fulton County. Now, I don't think it's going to be of the same scope, but it's still a nonsense situation. They're trying to do it in a county in Michigan. Do you see where, and he goes, and this is a quote, once one, uh, once one falls, they all fall. Are you understanding? So mm-hmm. what do we do? I, I know that more media outlets are picking, up, picking it up, although I wish they'd talk more about Bannon directly. But what do we do? What do you think? What is, I'm not, I know this is a big question, and <laughs> it's almost, <laughs> it, it, I feel, sometimes I feel overwhelmed. Like, what do we, how do we, what do we do? Do we call our, representatives to say, to get the DOJ. Oh, by the way, Bans are worried the DOJ is going to shut down those audits, which tells me he's talking yeah. to Trump also. I mean, he's talking to Trump. I know he is. And, well, Trump's in a circle. They all go on the show regularly. So <laughs> there, he keeps bringing up, like, do you think the DOJ is going to shut it down? Like he'll ask, like, one of the Trump's inner circles that goes on the show. So he's clearly nervous about the DOJ. Now, why isn't the DOJ shutting this down? I finally saw, like, it was either Maddow or somebody, you know, that I respect asked this question. Like, what, what's going on here with these audits? Yeah, why, I, I wish why I knew. You <laughs> I know. I'm I wish I knew. That no one can, I mean, I wish, I wish like, Mayor Carlin was in front of me I or anybody over there. Yeah. But I, you, I know that they're not going to stop, right? Like, they're not going right. to stop unless people stop them. Right. I mean, how do we do – I said to my husband this morning, I said, I think the difference between then and now is as far as, like, the Obama – because someone like Abandon keeps thinking – he keeps saying it. There's going to be another Tea Party revolt. And remember, when he – Breitbart News was, like, the publication for – the Tea Party. People, I don't know if people realize that. And they managed to get out Eric Cantor. So there was, like, little successful things that they managed to primary people and that were more, quote-unquote, establishment or moderate. And so that, to me, this whole Tea Party thing was, is a precursor to the MAGA, what's going on right now. But I... The, what I think is the good news is that during the Obama years, I've been polit- politically active my entire life, and I'm not young. I was a committee person in the 90s. I've been, you know, I was very engaged, you know, during the GWB years. But I'll admit, during the Obama years, I kind of like, I had other things. I had like young kids. I mean, I just had, I wasn't as plugged in. I mean, and I'm a news junkie. But I think that we're all super plugged in after what we just went through. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, definitely. So, <laughs> that, I mean, that didn't sound good. A lot. Um, we're, we're, we're in a different world now than we were, you know, even during the Obama years. Um, 
just because of the way that Trump was able and, and all of the strategies, you know, that people were using around Trump, um, you know, not just Steve Bannon, but white nationalists were taking advantage of what Trump was doing and feeding him, you know, storylines and memes and, um, you know, fighting for him online and whatnot. Um, okay. You know, every day, you know, to use Alex Jones's um, <laughs> TV show uh, as a, a frame, like every day we're fighting the info wars. And, yes. you know, and it's, and I think people understand that now. And yep. prior to Trump's election, people didn't understand that. Um, I mean, if you're on the internet today, you know, you're, you're involved in the info wars. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and people were fighting those info wars before, and I think they were fighting them on the right, and they were very successful at it, and people on the left didn't understand it was even happening. Um, and so I think what's different today is that people are much more aware of the propaganda that's, you know, around them every day. Um, I don't think that's a, a good thing, right? Like <laughs> having yeah. having InfoWars be, you know, the dominant way of organizing our public sphere is, is dangerous, um, obviously, not productive for solving political problems. Um, but, you know, if you're on but the left today, honestly, I think you're in a different circumstance than you were during Obama's term. Right. And I think, I mean, quite honestly, I think we do have to pay attention to what the right's doing. I mean, I always have, like, kind of hate-listened, like, the AB, remember when all these, like, the Hannity's, they were all on Monica Crowley, they were on ABC radio, like, right, you know, AM radio, like, right-wing radio before social media or anything. And I always used to, like, hate-listen these shows for years. I just, I think it's important that, you know, we stay I'm not asking you to watch Fox News or OAN or whatever. I'm just saying just, like, at least stay engaged and make sure you vote. Make sure that, you know, you don't ever miss an election, I think, is first of all. I guess. I mean, I'm trying to, like, come up with answers, even for myself. <laughs> but it's we yeah. have to stay plugged in. We have to always vote. We have, you know, try to get involved in your local, you know, whether you don't, you know, are are a party person, I happen to be one you know, as far as a political party or you do some outside activism work, but just like stay engaged, at least know what's happening, stay involved. I think, yeah. I guess. I think, I think so. And I, I think it's also important to, and it's also hard to do, um, but to stay friends with or in communication with your neighbors and family members who watch Fox News and OAN and supported mm -hmm. Trump because it's that alienation and that, you know, separation from us versus them polarization that creates that distrust that allows those messages to succeed, right? You know, That's if... interesting what you just said. Do you, do you, are you familiar with Steve Hassan? He's like a cult expert. He, he's, been, he's a PhD. Yeah. He's been around forever. Yeah, I've done some things with him. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, I mean, this is what he says. He says you can't yeah. talk to these people like they're idiots or like they don't know what they're doing or they're really ridiculous. Right. You can't. You have to talk with them with compassion and respect. And, you know, it, it, he really, I really recommend people 
look at his work. He's on Twitter at cult expert, just to, you know, mm-hmm. spell that exactly as it sounds, cult expert. And his work, he's been around for, I've known about him for, gosh, 18 years, because he used to do lots of Scientology. He's, he knows about all the cults. And that's what he says. I think yeah. you're onto something, and he's onto something. <laughs> as much as <laughs> as hard as it is, I mean, my husband and I talk about it all the time, is we, you know, we have people in our lives that were anti-mask, you know, because Trump was an anti-science person during the whole COVID thing and made it this, I don't know, cause to not be for science during a pandemic, whether it was masks or now I'm seeing the vaccines, you know, they act like they're, they're oppressed because of a vaccine. Just, you know, we could go on for hours, but yeah, there was a frustration, I think. I think, like, if you saw someone that was refusing to wear a mask, was mad about it, was posting things on social media, and you know them in some way, you automatically knew, like, kind of where their politics were, and there was like, this weird feeling. I think that's what's happened also in the last, like, definitely since the pandemic. It's, yeah. I wonder how many yeah, have you have you, um, have you read anything about Derek Black? He's um, the son of um, this white supremacist guy who started Stormfront. Oh. Have you he, read any, oh, anything about him? Front? I'm sorry? He's the son of the guy that, that Yeah, Don Black, who started Stormfront. So, like, he, he used to be, like, he grew up in, like, David Dukes' godfather. Like, he grew up in white nationalism, was, like, the future leader of the movement, um, you know, on the oh, radio wow. as a teenager, that kind of thing. Um, right. There's a, a bunch of great stuff that he's written or done interviews about and he's kind of, you know, out there in the public sphere now um, as, as a former white nationalist, right? And so he talks about how basically he was deprogrammed um, and... Uh, it's interesting. Like he went to college and tried mm-hmm. to like fit in with the kids there and they didn't know who he really was. And then they found out and then at first they kind of shunned him and then they decided, you know, let's start inviting the guy to some stuff. And mm-hmm. they basically like, again, you know, that alienation, like they basically befriended the guy and they were like, you know, Hey, <laughs> we're not such bad people, these people. And his whole reality like crumbled, you know? And, um, and I think that that, like, like um, the cult leader guy says, right? Like Rick said, um, I think that that is, is the way that we move forward is through connection. Um, Right. You know, that it's not the way, like we are not who you think we are. And if you get to know me as a person, then all of the propaganda, you know, starts to look false. And I mean, the thing about politics and propaganda and news, all of that stuff is that, you know, we want to participate in politics, but we don't have direct firsthand experience with it. Like we can't see what's actually happening. And so everything is mediated. And so of course that means that it's right for all kinds of manipulation um, right. And I mean, Chomsky wrote about this <laughs> a long time ago, um, you know, from the perspective of the left. Right. Like, look at how the industrial military, um, you know, the government, like 
you know, big business, look at how they control, you know, your version of reality through the media. Well, you know, the same thing happens on the right. And there hasn't been that, like, breakthrough thing where people who consume that news and information can see it as propaganda in the same way that they see mainstream media as propaganda. Right. Um, you know, right. and so you've got to crack that. I, and I think that the yeah. only way to do it is through interpersonal non-mediated <laughs> and right not making people because when you know i know i know if it's me if it's somebody's kind of doing a judgment thing on me then my back goes up against a wall i mean i'm a human being it's hard i think that we all do that right i mean i'm less receptive okay yeah i think that's a really good point you're making and just you know one last question you talk about the one six commission well, we know, you know, Mitch McConnell, I think he's protecting his career and he's definitely putting his own party and himself over country. I mean, it really, and because he was whipping votes, like, you know, as of last night, even yesterday, what do you, if we don't, I, I, I'm hoping that the, my party are, you know, the democratic party, I'm hoping they do, some kind of like they got to bring people got to come like whatever is the next alternative if you can't get the 10 i think it was seven more republicans needed to sign on i guess i don't even know where we're at right the second but they're not going to pass it because they're afraid of trump right Mm -hmm. or trump supporters yeah base the base of the thing which by the way on a side note i'm no wizard but I was really into sort of like the whole Sandy Hook uh, trutherism world, like debunking them and, you know, whatever. Yeah. And I, in a sense, kind of knew one of the, sadly, one of the parents that child was passed away. And, and, and I was flagging videos that there was a ton of content creators you know, doing like crisis factor videos. And that's, they, they were the first group of people that I saw that supported Donald Trump. So this would have been 2015. So in 2015 of December, the day of the San Bernardino shooting, um, one of these content creators, before they got all got kicked off of YouTube, which they did eventually, but one of the bigger ones said, oh, Trump is going on Alex Jones. So I tuned in at the time that it was going to be, and this was before the San Bernardino incident. So this would have been like mm-hmm. a couple hours before. And he's on, and I was very familiar with that conspiracy info wars world by this point. And I said, okay, I know what he's doing. He's going for this very, there's like a patriot militia overlap, kind of libertarian overlap, very conspiratorial overlap he's going for that base. I know what he's doing. And the next day he calls for the Muslim ban. Mm-hmm. Like he was either on morning Joe or whatever show it was in the morning. He called for that Muslim ban the very next day. I knew exactly what he was doing and I'm no wizard. So I knew he was going for that particular base. And yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. And again, I'm and not he, psychic. It's, it's, it's another one of the stories that I tell in the book because um, it's, it's very interesting. When he first starts 
talking about the refugee crisis, he says it's a humanitarian crisis and we should help those people as much as we can, including taking refugees, um, which you would never like expect him to have said. Uh, but he did say it and immediately he was pushed back, um, you know, from Fox News, from, from, from Breitbart, right, from right, other, right. from Limbaugh, like all kinds of right wing, fringy right. type people started to say like, maybe he hasn't really thought this through. Maybe, right. you know, Trump doesn't, you know, because that is very much at odds with his, um, you know, being on the right side of the nationalist question, which was why so many white supremacists had supported him. Um, and right. so he very quickly learned to, um, you know, narrative laundering is the analytic um, term for it. It's what propaganda okay. scholars call it, um, where yeah. you recirculate somebody else's talking point. So he, he very quickly learned to um, say that instead of it being a humanitarian crisis, which positions, you know, the refugees as human, right, as people who need help, um, right. he instead learned to call them uh, an invading army, saying, you know, we don't know who these people are. They look like strong right. men. Why is that? Um, right. And he learned to call them um, a Trojan horse, which is an object, um, <laughs> right, mm. a plot line. And, um, and he got that Trojan horse language from some really sketchy right-wing blogs, um, you know, anti-immigrant and refugee blogs. Um, you know, and, and that's one of the stories that I tell about, you know, how he uses war rhetoric, which is um, reification, treating people as objects. Um, and, yeah, I'm, I also talk about the Alex Jones interview. It's just such a great moment <laughs> where <laughs> conspiracy theory world and, you know, yeah, I mean, collide. brought into, it's, like, mainstream. So weird. Right. Yeah, exactly. So weird. And I want and, people to know, I mean, Ann Coulter played a major, you know, he was, so she wrote this book called Adios America in 2015, and she, and I've listened to so many interviews of her, and she says, you know, he was the only, he was, he was the pot, when I would go to tea party, you know, rallies, I would always talk about guns, then I would talk about abortion, you know, know, pro-life, and they loved it. But then when I would bring up immigration, the crowd went wild. That's practically like a verbatim, what she says, over and over. So she writes this book, Adios America, and of course she's cherry-picking stats of all the criminals and et cetera that come on over. And he, someone on his staff, well, he read, and then he loved that book, and then he comes down the escalator, and he's basically a lot of that anti-immigration stuff like, you know, the, the rapists and the this and the that was, I mean, it's been widely acknowledged that he read her book or he had somebody read her, her book and she <laughs> he was using that book as far as like the, the immigration was very central. And as you know, he brought in Jeff Sessions, who was a backbencher senator, did nothing, but was like, you know, racist. And Stephen Miller, who was just this guy that like, the Breitbart people found out because he used to go on local radio in San Diego. And then he was a speechwriter for Jeff, Jeff Sessions. Well, they were writing those immigration stuff long before Trump was running. So this has been going on a while, right? And you're right. I mean, the minute that if you – so Ann Coulter says over and over, so she kind of turned on him because he wasn't building the wall fast enough, right? This right. would have been like 2018, and she's all over. She's like, anyone will have her. 
you know, she's constantly like, well, he's breaking his promises. Well, you know, it's silly me that I would want someone that would keep their promises. And the people that he's upsetting is the base. It's not me. It's going to be the base. It's going to be the base. She says it over and over and over again that the base wants the immigration. They, you know, basically kicking people out. They want the wall. I mean, I can't tell you how over and over, and I could do it like word for word what she says. <laughs> and I think that that's still continuing to this day, that the minute these Republicans are so afraid of this base, mm-hmm. that look what's happening now. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, they won't even, I mean, like our capital was attacked that we can all see with our own eyes. We can all see it. So we're just supposed to act like nothing? It's, it's you know these people, and again, I always make a joke, but a lot of these senators, they have degrees that I couldn't imagine having from Yale, from Harvard, whatever. These are not uneducated people. They know what they saw. They know what they experienced. They were there. I don't yes. even know what they're, but they're so afraid of, uh, I think a prime, it's like the Breitbart model. Back in the day when they managed to get Eric Cantor out before, you know, when Obama was president, I think that they're so afraid of like a primary. Is that it? Yeah. Yeah. Because they'll get primary from the right. That's what I mean. They're so afraid of, of, and so now all these candidates, so now I'm taking a tally of all these candidates. I see that go on. By the way, Elise Stefanik, who's now the third in, you know, in succession in the, in the house and with the whole Cheney debacle. And believe me, I can't believe I would not, we're at the point where I'm like, yay, Liz Cheney, but I'm not because she's the Cheney, <laughs> but let's continue. At least she's for the, like acknowledging, like, this is how low we are. At least she's acknowledging the, the, you know, the Biden one and she's standing up and whatever she's doing. But I knew, I mean, Liz Stefanik, listen, I had a house of state. I'm familiar with that district. It's a kind of a more of a purple district. And she was a moderate. And she ran as that. And there's even evidence that she was, like, against, like, the border wall situation and all that. And there's people that knew her and kind of worked with her, you know, in New York politics, right? And she went on Bannon's show mm-hmm. to, to really appeal to hit that base that I'm as Trumpy as you're ever going to find. I don't say, yes, I, I believe in election, quote, unquote, integrity. I think we need to do these audits. You see what I mean? She, like, did the whole uh, the whole thing. And not, now look sure. where she is now. So you're, I think that the party is now saying you're rewarded if you're going to tell the big lie and now the continued big lie, which is we have to do these audits. You're rewarded. If you stand up, you, you could be, like, Jeff Flake or any of these others that are either not running again or they got, you know, they lost their seats or, you know, he, whatever, or Liz Cheney, you know, how many Liz Cheneys are there right now? How many Adam Kinzinger's are there really from like, I guess the other wing of the party. And so I think they see like, oh gosh, if I like act like a normal person and say reality, I'm going to get, my career is going to be damaged and I'll be out. 
I think that's all this is. This is it's not more complicated than that, right? Do you agree with no, that? No, it's not. <laughs> it's not more complicated than that. <laughs> well, I could talk to you that's for right. hours. I, you've been so generous with your time. Where can so again, everyone? I really, really recommend the, her book. It's called Demagogue for President. <laughs> it was written on. You know, it was published. It was published in July of 2020. Correct. Yes. It is outstanding. You know, there's, we've, we're so blessed that we have such amazing people that really understand sort of like authoritarianism and demagogues, like, you know, Father Coughlin. Like, there's, there's many in history, Mussolini, et cetera. This book is in the same league as, as some of the best I've read. It's just incredible. And her Twitter is amazing. And it's, I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. <laughs> I thank can't you. thank you You're enough. I hope you, I hope you come back on, Professor, and it's Lucia, correct? That's correct. correct. Yes. Thank you so, so very much. It's been an honor to talk to you, and, and your work is invaluable. Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you, Professor. Bye-bye.